from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. From 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And it reads this way. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery they malign, uh, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they, may, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers the multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be back from uh, the land of death. Um, I had the flu last week. If you're here, um, I wasn't, so welcome. Um, I'm thankful for Joel Busby, Pastor Grace uh, Fellowship, <laughs> Homewood, who I texted on Saturday morning and said, can you preach for me tomorrow? <laughs> Uh, and he jumped in and did it, and I'm grateful to him. I'm grateful that the Lord used his words, preaching on Psalm 23. It's awesome to go back and listen to it. But yeah, super glad to be back. And um, it's good to see all of you. And, uh, and the flu has just ransacked our church, which is crazy. So it's good to see a lot of you back um, from that. Uh, so if you're new with us, if you're guests with us, my name's Austin Baker, the lead pastor here at Emmanuel Church. And we have been trekking through first peter the last few months and here we are uh this morning in this text first peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 which is our preaching text for this morning um it's been a good time for me i hope it's been a good time for you um, but i want to pray for us right now as we enter into these verses We're really going to hone in on verses 7 through 11 um, this morning but let me pray for us and ask the spirit of god just to, to be with us this morning Father, I do praise you for your kindness and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, whom we believe in. We believe the Spirit moves still. The Spirit opens up eyes to see, ears to hear, brings new hearts to dead hearts. And Lord, I just pray you do that this morning. I pray, Father, that as the Word is preached, as we look at the Word, you just glorify your Son, Jesus. Jesus glorifies you. And this is all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray now as we open up your word, change us. You remind us of gospel truths and who we are to be in Christ Jesus as a body and individuals. And it is all for your glory. We pray this is in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> um, I think it's safe to say uh, that in our culture, 
uh, there is a, a fascination with the end of the world. Um, this manifests itself in movies like Armageddon, which was the first PG-13 movie I ever saw in theaters. I remember like it was yesterday, 1999. Uh, or television shows like The Walking Dead, if you're familiar with The Walking Dead, or even books by people like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, or uh, uh, Stephen King's The Stand is a good example of just the end of all things. You, know, you see doomsday cults arrive on the scenes, think about Heaven's Gate uh, in the 90s with the Hellbop comet you know, coming across the skies, or even the Branch Davidians, David Koresh. These cults with these charismatic, authoritative leaders, they come on the scene, they declare that the end is coming, and that they are the only ones that can protect people from oncoming devastation and destruction. And Christians, we also talk about the end of all things quite a bit, right? I mean, Jesus is coming back. We believe that. And when he does, he will usher in the rescue of his church and he will judge humanity. <clears throat> but the temptation many times in Christian circles is to talk about the end of all things and to speculate and discuss like how all these things are going to come about in detail and all these different maps on the walls and whatever timelines. But neglect to give any time as to how we are to live now in light of the end. Like, how should we live? If the end is coming, what should our lives look like? Rather than speculate on what is to come, what should we be doing now as believers? We're from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to our passage for this morning. We've been trekking through this. Peter has, in a way, been seeking to answer that question. After telling these believers, these new people, and us as well, they're in Christ Jesus, that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, it's chapter 2, a people for God's own possession. After he's established our identity, Peter then spends two entire chapters from 2.11 to where we are today, talking about how believers are to live their lives within their new identity as Christians. <clears throat> Excuse me. Still got some congestion from the flu, but I'm healthy, okay? I feel good. I feel good. So Peter discusses how they should live in chapter 2 under government officials, how they should live together as husbands and wives, that's chapter 3, how they should respond when persecuted for doing good, righteous things in this world, and how they should refrain from taking part in wicked practices. And in the midst of evil kings, in the midst of broken marriages, ridicule for seeking to do good, being maligned for not taking part in the decadence of the culture, for in the middle of all these things, Peter offers these believers and us, in our text for this morning, an exhortation on how we should live in light of the end, in this new community together, this new people that we constitute. And if we can't live with one another like a new people with a new identity, then our message of hope and salvation in Christ Jesus will look weak and it will look undesirable to people that don't know Jesus. So the main thrust I kind of want to put before you this morning, if everything could be summed up into one sentence, it would be this, that our new identities in Christ are defined by eternity and affection for the glory of God. That our new identities in Christ are defined by eternity and affection for the glory of God. Now we're going to spend the next this morning just unpacking that statement, and I pray, I pray that as we reflect on what it means to be a people, a people of God, that as we emulate how God, who God has called us to be, that we bring great glory to our God, who has saved us and called us His own. So 
So let's take a look at our text. Verse 7 of chapter 4. It kind of serves as the overarching theme between and a bridge between verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4 and 7b through verse 11. It's kind of a hinge on which the passage swings here. And it begins by saying this, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Verses 1 through 6 contain this brief discussion on, on what defines the lives who are not Christ followers, who don't follow Jesus, who don't believe the gospel. You know, Peter challenges the believers in this setting, hearing this, to not partake in the practices of the outside culture. He tells them, he uses the language in verse 1, to arm themselves. It's like, take up your arms, take up your weapons. And the weapons are the thinking of Christ, namely the mindset of suffering for Christ rather than denying him in the world. And then in verse 3, he lists some behaviors that characterize those in the world. And he charges believers to stay away from those behaviors, those characteristics. In verse 4, it says, by refraining from these practices, that the world, the culture, will potentially malign you. They'll be shocked that you're not taking part in what they're taking part in. They'll be taken aback. They'll be surprised. And a possible result of this is they will push you aside. They'll ridicule you for refraining from and approving and not approving of their way of living. But Peter reminds his readers, and I said verses 5 and 6, that judgment is coming. That those that persecute and malign the church now will one day have to give an account to the God who judges both the living and the dead. Now, regardless if you believe in God or not, regardless of what your personal views are on the existence of God, or if he is even the fact the God of the Bible, it has no bearing on the fact that God is real. And you will have to stand before him one day in judgment. You may deny gravity exists, but if you jump off a bridge, gravity will show up pretty quick. And in light of this judgment, Peter says the end of all things is it here? Now it's interesting, it's been almost 2,000 years since Peter penned these words, and we're still here. The end doesn't appear to have come yet, so what is Peter talking about? What kind of end is he talking about? You know, it's been a widespread Christian belief since the early church that the death and resurrection of Jesus set in motion the end of all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. And when Christ came, he inaugurated the last days. And in light of him setting in motion these last days, everything from his resurrection on should be seen through the lens of the approaching end. You know, Peter's using language not to communicate that the end will happen soon. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, soon, relatively speaking, right? The world has existed for a long time. But soon. But he's rather referring to a point when time will terminate. That when completed, it will be marked by the return of Christ. That the curtain signifying the final act in this world will fall. And it could fall at any time. Peter's not telling us to speculate on dates and times of when this may happen or how this may happen. 
but he's seeking to instill inside of us a sense of urgency that the end of all things is at hand. You know, I'm a big soccer fan uh, from Atlanta. Uh, been there the last eight years, so was there when Atlanta United got started and was part of the founders of Atlanta United. Just paid a bunch of money. They call me founder. Um, <laughs> and soccer, you know, you play a 90-minute match, right? Two 45-minute halves. <clears throat> and there's this period at the end of each 45-minute half called stoppage time or injury time. It's the time that's accumulated over that 45-minute period that's been used for injuries or time stoppage. They have to stop play in the field. And what they do is they take all that time and they add it all together and then they tack it on to the end of that 45th minute or the end of the 90th minute. So when that 45 or 90 minute mark hits, although there may be a few minutes tacked on to stoppage time, you know that the end is near. That the end of the game is imminent. That the end of the half is coming. The beginning of the end is come. So during stoppage time, there's a greater urgency to score a goal, right? Or to defend your goal. Or to hold out so that you may win the match. And Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, inaugurating the last days. We're in stoppage time now. That's the reality we live in now. The end is imminent. The end is coming. We are in the last days. So in light of the end being near, Peter then exhorts the church to live their lives in light of that reality. If we really believe, if we really believe that the end of all things is at hand, our lives will look very different in this world. Peter gives us four behaviors, four behaviors in verses 7 through 11, that will grow our affection for the glory of God, and they will also grow our affection for one another. And the first behavior that should characterize the church living their lives in light of the end is to be fervent in prayer. To be fervent in prayer. Verse 7, that continues, says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore, so in light of the end, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know, the sense of being sober-minded and self-controlled it communicates this idea of keeping things happening in our world in perspective. We must think rightly, biblically, sober-mindedly about events surrounding us and going on in our world and in our lives. Rather than panic and cower in fear or get defensive, we need to be sober-minded enough to understand that the one who governs the end is our God not any circumstances in this life. You know, we're not panickers. Panickers, church, I think that's a word. You know, midterm elections are Tuesday, right? Coming up, local elections. And if you've listened to any of the rhetoric from whatever side of the fence you may find yourself on, you would think that the future of all things freedom and flourishing and hope and America are on the line. The exhortations from the right and from the left are so full of fear-inducing, panic-laden messages and phrases. You would think that the end of all things rested who gets elected on Tuesday and who does not. But we don't believe this, church. We don't believe that. In the face of the supercharged doomsday rhetoric, we must maintain an eternal perspective. We must be 
be sober-minded and self-controlled. Yes, elections are important, but they aren't that important. Jesus isn't waiting for all Democrats or all Republicans to get elected to office before when, well, things have gotten as bad as they're going to be. I guess I'll come back now. No. You know, 1 Peter 1.13, earlier in this letter, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. That Christ is coming back, regardless of who wins on Tuesday. He, our sovereign God, reigning over the universe, holds all things in his hands. And he will take care of us, church. Not call the panic. You know, being sober-minded and self-controlled allows us to think and evaluate situations maturely and correctly. We need to set our hope on Christ, our hope on him. Not on any man-made attempt to get us out of our present cultural situation. You know, we should be students of theology and students of the culture. You know, Karl Barth was a theologian from the mid-20th century, and he said we should do theology with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. When we're sober-minded, we don't lose sight of God and his sovereignty amidst the seeming chaos around us. That's not how we respond. God has not vacated his throne. He reigns right now. The preoccupation with the dire cultural issues of our day, or even preoccupation with, with speculating all details on when Christ will come and what that's going to look like that happens inside the church sometimes leads to hysteria rather than sober-minded wisdom. This should not characterize us, church. We, we're not characterized by these things. But rather, we should be the faithful, like the faithful servants described in Luke 12. Dressed, ready for action, and busy as we await the return of our King. One hand on the plow and one hand, uh, one eye on the sky. Peter says we're to maintain sobriety and self-control, and then he says for the sake of our prayers. You know, if we didn't have this last phrase about prayer, we may be tempted to think that we need to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of crafting up arguments and defense against whatever those arguments may come our way. And yeah, I think it's necessary to do that. We should be well-versed in theology to combat false ideas and false gospels, no doubt. But Peter's telling us here that it's not the first thing we're to be concerned with. Our first concern as believers living in light of the end is prayer. As we await Christ's return, our churches should be marked by faithful, prayerful engagement with one another on behalf of one another. That we each may make it to the end. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So that's the first thing. Of a church living in light of the end, we should be praying for one another. Second, we should be demonstrating sacrificial love demonstrate sacrificial love. Verse 8. Read it with me again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, if we're praying for one another, then our love for one another should be growing as a result. You know, I found it really difficult to hate those you're praying for. You know, prayer is in the service of love. You know, Peter mentions uh, love at the beginning of 
the letter, chapter 1, verse 22. Again, recapping what we've already talked about. Where he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Keep loving one another. Love is that which gives life to all other duties within the church. Now, if you teach, your motivator should be love. If you hold a door, your motivator should be love. If you take care of kids, your motivator should be love. We're told to keep loving one another earnestly. And the word earnestly, uh, it, it doesn't, it's not like a, an English word that actually gets the full meaning of the Greek word into English. But if we were to translate it directly from the Greek, it would be to love at full stretch. What it means. To love at full stretch. It's a love that continues to grow and stretch in endurance and endurance. We'll find that our, as our love is stretched, our affections for those we love will grow. We'll love them deeply, deeper, more effectually. And it's a love undergirded by the great love of our God in Christ Jesus that stretches eternally. And the stretching love, it will cover a multitude of sins, what the text says here. Now, this is a paraphrase of Proverbs 10 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Uh, now, this phrase could easily be misconstrued. Peter's not using it to say that if we love, we cover a multitude of our own sins. Like, if I love you well enough, then God will forgive me more. That's not what he's saying here. We know that Christ is the only one who can cover and remove our sins. We can't do that on our own. There's no work we can do to do that. But Peter is saying that where earnest, stretching love abounds, the more easily it is to overlook offenses. Big and small offenses that are committed against us by others. This love is a love that endures everything. It's long-suffering. You know, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he said, As God with his love covers my sins if I believe, so must I also cover the sins of my neighbor. This doesn't mean that sin in the church should be covered up or denied. This doesn't mean that there are no consequences for actions or sin. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wise in appointing people to different posts within the church, offices within the church and ignore significant character flaws or weaknesses or shortcomings. That's not what he's saying here. But what it does mean is we're not so harsh to keep condemnation and judgment upon other people. But we bear the burdens with them and let the stretching love of God take hold in our hearts. Now, some of us sitting in this room right now, <clears throat> there may be some significant dislike or even some hatred for other men and women in this church. You know, we're quick to criticize and keep judgment on others in this body when a mistake is made or when somebody messes up or a word is misspoken. You know, how many times do we bring past, literally, like years in the past, things someone has done, use it as a weapon to wound in the present? And what we do oftentimes is we take this, this life-giving word a word that's intended to build up, not tear down, and we use it as a, a weapon to wound rather than a balm to heal. You know, we're called to bear with one another, not berate one another. Love needs to be extended from you and from me towards one another, and forgiveness needs to be bestowed. It's the kind of love that Christ possessed as he was literally stretched out on the cross. 
demonstrating his enduring love for us, even as he hung on the tree and bled out for our salvation. Yeah, I've talked about my grandparents before, um, particularly my grandparents on my mom's side, North Georgia, the North Georgia Martins, which if you ever go to North Georgia and you have, uh, uh, you can say the last name Martin, particularly White County, Georgia, um, they're, they're legends, all right? They're, I found out a lot when my, my grandmother died, sitting around with my family, a lot about the old moonshining and stuff in the north, you know, mountains of North Georgia. We'll talk about that later. But um, I come from some unique stock, all right? Uh, some very creative people in transporting moonshine across White County, but that's another story. Uh, but my grandparents, um, fortunately, were married for 62 years. That's amazing. 62 years. And during that last few years of that 62 years of marriage, my, my grandmother, uh, Louise, or Nanny, that's what we call her, it's a good southern word, um, began to suffer from a dementia and Alzheimer's. And if you've ever seen someone walk through that before, I mean, it is, it's just devastating. I mean, it's just, it's just really difficult to watch someone you love just begin to lose uh, cognitive functioning just all across the board. In those last two years of my nanny's life, she, she died in 2017, um, were an extremely difficult time, obviously, as you can imagine, uh, in their marriage. You know, as my grandmother's mind was beginning to break down and uh, her body was becoming weaker and weaker, and, you know, there were moments where she would forget people, obviously, and places and names and dates and times, and she grew increasingly restless during the day and couldn't sleep at night. And, Begin to require more assistance with just everyday normal normal functions, um, and this was happening really quickly, very quickly. Um, but as all these changes were taking place in her physical body, cognitive mind, uh, there was one constant and changing thing throughout the entire process, and it was the person sitting by her side the whole time. And my grandfather uh, loved and cared for and treated. My grandmother, those last two difficult, trying, exhausting years of her life, in a way that I will never forget. It showed me that you know it's easy to love when times are good. That's easy, man. Anybody can do that. But true, earnest, stretching love comes forward when times are hard, when there may not be any reciprocity on the other end. It's the kind of love we're called to, church. It's a love that persists despite difficulty and strain. It's a love that forgives and is gracious towards other people. You know, we oftentimes uh, spiritually forget who we are, right? We have spiritual dementia, spiritual amnesia. And the loving thing for us to do for one another in those moments is not to berate, it's not to ridicule, it's not to remind us. Uh, tear down somebody else for forgetting who they are, but it's to gently and graciously remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. And it's from that posture of fervent prayer and sacrificial love that we come now to serving one another. The bedrock is prayer and love, and then we act in service towards one another. And that's the third thing, third thing. Third behavior that should characterize us as we wait for Christ's return is to exercise gracious hospitality. To exercise gracious hospitality. In verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's a key phrase, without grumbling. 
Uh, Edmund Clowney said this. He said, it's the love of God that brings us to our brother's feet. It is the grace of God that fills our basin for service. Love compels us to serve, humbles us enough to serve, and the grace gives us, gives us the desire and strength to carry out the service. It's all God's grace acting through us, giving us the disposition and the actions we serve one another. And one of the ways we do that is by extending hospitality. You know, think about how this would have played out uh, in the early church. There were no church buildings. There's nothing like this, you know, in the early church, ancient Roman world. But rather, local churches met at homes. You know, all, oftentimes, traveling preachers, men like Paul and Peter, they would need places to stay when they would come to town to preach to the local church. Churches. Official church meetings were impossible to have unless members of that church extended the hospitality of opening up their homes to meet. You know, without the practice of hospitality, the spread of the gospel would have been severely limited and strained. There's this posture of open-heartedness towards one another. Not just open hands, but open-heartedness towards one another. But what makes Christian hospitality unique and different from worldly hospitality is that we are hospitable towards those who are not like us. Christian hospitality is extended to others regardless of background, social standing, socioeconomic class, race, ethnicity, or cost to us. Christian hospitality places, uh, creates a place of safety and of well-being for the stranger, the alien, and the sojourner in our lives, in our midst. Because that's who we are. We're like the exiles, right? Strangers, aliens, and sojourners in this world. This kind of hospitality can be expressed in two ways, corporately and individually. So let's think for just a second. Corporately, corporate hospitality, church hospitality, should find its place here in this body. If you're a guest with us, I pray to God you have felt welcome today. If you haven't, we have failed you, and I'm sorry. Give us another Sunday. We'll be better next week. But I hope you felt welcomed here. You know, before coming to Emmanuel, uh, I was uh, over the hospitality ministry at our previous church, a teaching pastor there and oversaw hospitality. And our goal in that ministry was for our church to reflect the same care and kindness and love that's extended to us in Jesus Christ. Just as God has welcomed us into his family in Christ Jesus, so we as a church should be ready and willing to welcome others in our midst. It's who we are. As God has shown us hospitality, so we extend that to other people. We desire for people coming to Emmanuel to feel whole and built up and a part of us. So if you're a guest, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. So thankful for you. Welcome. If you're a member here, I'm so glad you're here too. All right? Um, but you know, I hope you feel welcome if you're a member here. Um, you're still sticking around, so that's a good thing. Um, but also, also, on an individual scale, each of us are called and commissioned to extend hospitality in our own personal lives. So who are you inviting into your home to sit around your table? Are you inviting anyone? And if you are, are you only inviting those that look like you, or that act like you, that believe the same things you do? <coughs> if they are only like you, how different is that from the kind of hospitality people without Christ extend to one another? 
I encourage you to invite your neighbors and coworkers and those who aren't like you to sit at your tables. Who don't share the same values and worldview as you. You know, if you're a manager in a company or higher up in the business, do you only invite other managers and higher ups to sit around your table? Or do you also invite those who work under you? Admin assistants, custodial staff, men and women who may not be able to get you ahead. Republicans, you only invite other Republicans over for dinner. Do you ever invite Democrats or anybody in between? Or vice versa? And I'm not saying your dinner conversation should be laced with debating and fighting over political issues. That is a horrible way to extend hospitality, okay? Don't do that, please. All I'm asking, all I'm asking is if your dinner table is full of people who stretch your love. They stretch your love. They cause you to live within the gospel a little more. That distinguishes Christian hospitality from worldly hospitality. We desire to be a hospitable church. We desire to be welcoming towards one another and also at home. And to do this without grumbling. It's a term used in scripture to refer to repeated words of complaint. Most often the goal of these words was to stir up rebellion among those who were grumblers. You know, misery loves company, right? It's used a lot in the Old Testament when the people of God are in the wilderness, right? They get out of Egypt and they're like, oh, it would have been way better for us in slavery in Egypt. At least we had food to eat out there. And they start grumbling and complaining. God continues to provide for them, provide for them, and shows mercy to them. We extend hospitality joyfully. For God did not begrudgingly extend it to us. He didn't have his cosmic arm twisted and finally give in to send Christ to save us. But he did it willingly and joyfully and graciously to welcome us to the table and his family. So we too extend that towards other people. If God never tires of us knocking on his door, so to speak, never tires of us seeking his counsel or forgiveness or kindness from his hand. He's always welcoming at any time of the night, always available, always glad when we come to sit around his table. And then fourth, fourth, our behavior in light of the end should be characterized by using our gifts to edify the body. Use your gifts to edify the body. Verses 10 and 11, let's read it again together. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Stop there for just a second. A steward, it's a good antiquated word that we don't really use a lot anymore, but a steward was a manager of something that was not their own. Somebody else owns something, a steward would manage that something. You know, many times when we think of stewardship, we think of money, right? The preacher's going to talk about money again. I'm, I'm really not. Um, but uh, <laughs> here's thumbs the capital campaign. Um, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good right now. Um, but you're stewards of a variety of things, all right? A variety of things. You know, if you're a parent, you are stewards of your children if they're still in your home. God has entrusted their care to you. You don't own them. You're stewards of them. Your arrow, your quiver is full of arrows. 
psalmist writes, to be launched out into the world. How are you stewarding your kids, parents? If you live somewhere, all of us live somewhere, you're stewards of your apartments or your homes. You know, how are you using those homes and apartments to bring people into your lives, around your tables? You know, you're stewards of your bodies. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that your bodies are not your own. You were bought with Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. How are you taking care of your body? Don't own your body. Your body is not yours. God owns your body. And yes, resources, financial resources. You're stewards of those things. But God has entrusted to you resources to be used for his glory and his kingdom. To enjoy his presence in this world. You know, I had somebody tell me one time, I was talking about this, and they said, well, I work to earn that money. Yeah, but the ability to work is a gift from God. You can't conjure that up in yourself. God has graciously given you the ability and the skills to work a job, to make money, to be used for his glory. But if you're in Christ, you're also a steward of your spiritual gifts. As Christians, God has given us Spiritual gifts that are meant to be used to build up the church, not to hoard or glorify ourselves or show up everybody how great we are, but to build up the church, to strengthen the body. And as we are praying for one another and our love for each other is growing and we're seeking to show hospitality to each other, we'll begin serving each other. That's the natural progression here. We start serving each other because we love each other. We humble ourselves and bow the knee and serve one another. What has been given to us individually has been given to us for the sake of us corporately. All of us should benefit from the gifts God has given one another. You know, if the Bible's true, and I believe the Bible is true, I hope you do too, then we are one body, right? The church is one body. And in seeking the good of another, and humbling ourselves and seeking the good of somebody else, we're in essence seeking the good of ourselves too, right? I mean, if the body is healthy, all of the body will benefit from the health of the body, right? So we want to serve one another. God goes far to say that if you have the ability to serve others with your gifts and you're not using those gifts in service, you're not loving people as you ought, that the body is weaker right now than it could be. By God's grace, we want to serve for the strength of the body and the glory of our God. There is nothing we should not be willing to give up for the sake of one another, for Christ emptied himself of everything to serve us. Everything. He left heaven to die a sinner's death on the cross, to humble himself and die so that we could live. Can we not serve each other just a little bit? Speaking myself, too. Preaching myself, all right? All these fingers are pointing back at me, all right? I'm a hand talker, but they're all pointing at me. Um, this is true of me, too. And listen, the end goal of all of this, for living in light of the end by fervent prayer, sacrificial love, gracious hospitality, gifted service, all of that is for the glory of our God through Jesus Christ. All of it. Look at the end of verse 11. 
Just read all of verse 11, actually. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We don't possess the qualities of redeemed people for the primary purpose of having an attractive, welcoming church. That's not the primary purpose, all right? The primary church, uh, primary purpose of a church full of praying, loving, hospitable, serving people is that God would be glorified. It's the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Not the glory of Emmanuel, not the glory of Austin Baker, the glory of God. I want to close out this morning reading you a quote uh, from, from Edmund Clowney. I've quoted him already. He's amazing. Uh, read anything by him. It's fantastic. But he says this. It'll be on the screen for you. You can follow along. As Peter was keenly conscious of the gifts he'd received from Christ with the coming of the Holy Spirit, he'd been granted the miraculous signs of an apostle and could bid a layman to walk in the name of Jesus. He'd also been given grace to speak the word with boldness, proclaiming the exalted Christ as Prince and Savior. Jesus' disciples had once argued about who would be first in Christ's kingdom, but such thoughts are now remote from Peter's experience. Not his own leadership skills, but the gifts of Christ's spirit were the secret of his apostleship. Peter is jealous for God's glory in everything God is to be. In everything, God is to be glorified. May it be so of us, Emmanuel Church, the end of all things is at hand. So may we, may we respond not in fear, not in panic, not in over-speculation, but may we respond with affection for the glory of God as we show affection towards one another. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you, Father, for your kindness and your grace that is so wrapped up in this body. Not a body of perfect people, not a body of people that have it all together, but a body of people that truly desire to serve one another as we seek to serve you. Father, I ask you to point out to us those places where we fall short. Convict us on those places we need to repent of. But Father, I pray this is not rooted in some kind of works-based nonsense, but it's rooted in the fact that Christ has done all these things for us. That he is our example. And as our example, may we follow by the Spirit's work in us, in his footsteps. Not for the glory of ourselves, not for the glory of the church, but for the glory of our God. The end is coming, but oh God, we praise you that you have written the beginning and the end. But there is no need to panic, there's no need to fear, there's no need to cower. Father, you are sovereign over all things, and nothing happens in this world that has not passed through your hand. We believe that. May we live like we believe in you. Thank you for Christ. We love you. We love him. 
love the Spirit. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.